There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen, and oxygen, and nitrogen, and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold from actinium, and indium, and gallium, and iodine, and thorium, and thulium, and thallium. There's yttrium, ytterbium, actinium, rubidium. Why did Britain ban banana imports in 1940? And in 1979, the Gossamer Albatross was the first human-powered aircraft to cross the English Channel. Why was it called Gossamer? So if you have the answer to those two questions, you give us a call at 514-790-0800, or you can text to 514-800, along with any query you may have about the world of science. I'm Joe Schwartz. I uh, direct McGill University's Office for Science and Society, and uh, I also, of course, teach chemistry, which I think is the thread that ties all the other sciences together. So let me start by telling you an interesting little story. <clears throat> when a lady came up to me uh, as I was shopping at uh, at IGA, uh, sometimes that happens, you know, people recognize me because of the stuff that I've done on, on, on TV and also from picture in the Gazette. And uh, she comes up and she says, you know, I, I really like your show. I listen to you every Sunday afternoon. So, of course, I like hearing that kind of stuff. And she says, but, you know, you think that everything is related to chemistry. You know, why, why is that, you know? Uh, as I said, well, because, you know, the chemistry is a study of matter and the changes that matter undergoes. And uh, basically everything comes down to that. It's a study of molecules and the changes that they undergo. And she says, oh, yeah, yeah, well, you know, I don't think everything is explained by, by chemistry. So... Um, I said, well, no, of course. I mean, there are philosophical issues. I mean, you know, about deities and spirits and the soul. I mean, those are outside of our realm. But in the physical world, I think everything pretty well has a chemical uh, explanation. And she seemed skeptical about that. So I said, you know, uh, uh, just to, to play a little game here, I said, <clears throat> tell me something, give me some idea, and I'll see if I can come up with a chemical explanation. She thinks about it for a little bit, uh, and she says, all right, dish rags. <laughs> well, I was kind of happy to hear that because that wasn't going to be a difficult challenge uh, because there certainly are chemical connections to, to dish rags. Uh, why? Because, you know, we all experience that occasional bout with diarrhea and, you know, vomiting malaise, and often it's called the 24-hour flu, but that's, that's really a, a misnomer. Uh, the truth is that the most common cause of these symptoms is food poisoning. And various bacteria, uh, ranging from salmonella to staphylococci, uh, can be found in our food. And they can conspire to make us sick. And most people know the importance of proper cooking and controlling this problem. But uh, would you believe that you can reduce your chance of illness by uh, cooking your dish rag as well? And uh, so I was quite prepared to tell her this story because I had done this before, you know, so that <clears throat> I didn't have to sort of make it up on the spot because I was familiar with the work of Charles Gerba, University of Arizona, Tucson, um, who has done many, many experiments about, you know, microbes and how they influence our lives. And he collected dishcloths from across the U.S. 
and discovered that 70% of them harbored uh, pathogenic bacteria, that is, bacteria that could potentially cause disease. Well, wiping up after uncooked meat allows the bugs to multiply on the cloth, and then wiping up elsewhere spreads them. And uh, Gerber estimates that 90% of foodborne illness in the home can be prevented by using paper towels, washing hands after handling raw meat, and treating dish rags appropriately. What does that mean? It means throwing them into the dishwasher along with the dishes or putting them in a microwave for a minute. Well, let's talk about what you use those dish rags on, like cutting boards. There's the basic question of which kind to use, plastic or wood. <clears throat> now, many of you will remember, because I certainly remember this growing up in Montreal, one of the great delights was going to one of the great steakhouses where you'd be served a giant steak hanging off a wooden plate. And then someone decided that the wood was not hygienic and the plates disappeared. The same thing happened in homes where wooden cutting boards started to be replaced by plastic ones. It was assumed that the juices would seep into the wood more easily than into plastic and any bacteria present would multiply. But no one bothered to check whether this was true. Later, when curious scientists inoculated boards with a nutrient broth containing the common bacteria Listeria monocytogenes, uh, Staphylococcus aureus, and E. coli, they discovered that the grooves in the plastic were more conducive to bacterial growth than the grooves in the wood. Seems that wood contains some naturally occurring antibacterial compounds. Recently, uh, manufacturers have begun to incorporate antibacterial compounds like triclosan, the same stuff found in deodorant soaps into plastic cutting boards. This is totally unnecessary, and I think it is being phased out uh, because uh, triclosan is not something that we really want to, to be exposed to uh, for several reasons. One is that uh, it can increase bacterial resistance, and it also has some endocrine-disrupting properties. Uh, so we don't need that. The important thing is to wash boards, whatever you're using, plastic or wood, regularly. And after every scrub with soap and water, uh, what you should do is, uh, you know, make sure that you wash whatever you've been washing with. That is like the dish rags. So take care of your dish rags and they will take care of you. <clears throat> so that's the story that I told to my uh, questioner who confronted me in the in the supermarket uh, about uh, everything being related to, to chemistry. And indeed, uh, it is. Uh, let me just repeat the questions that I asked. Why did Britain ban banana imports in 1940? And in 1979, the Gossamer Albatross was the first human-powered aircraft to cross the English Channel. Why was it called Gossamer? I do also have a question that is still hanging around from uh, uh, from last week, which I think uh, was was not answered, if I remember correctly, and it was about what the uh, largest uh, reptile in the world is. What is the largest reptile in the world? So we still have that question uh, hanging out there, plus the others that I I just mentioned. <laughs> Now, something else that I have uh, come across uh, uh, just a, a couple of days ago, which uh, I find uh, very interesting and very pertinent because 
I think it pertains to, to uh, basically my lifestyle. And this is the question of the number of hours that uh, one spends sitting uh, at a desk. Now, I do that, uh, unfortunately, I, I think a fair bit, even though I try to get to the gym every day for that, you know, regular 30-minute uh, exercise that uh, science says that we should do, and I, I do that. However, uh, it turns out that that may not be enough in terms of trying to optimize your health if you are sitting at a desk all day. Uh, sitting is is not good. And there's mounting evidence uh, suggesting that, you know, prolonged sitting is hazardous to, to health, even when you exercise regularly. <clears throat> and that's why we are told to regularly stand up, you know, when you uh, have a job where you sit all day. And uh, I mean, you know, I do a lot of that uh, sitting in front of the computer because these days, um, even many of our lectures are through Zoom. So, you know, whereas I used to lecture standing up, uh, now I do it through uh, through Zoom. I mean, I'm actually compelled to do that because the class that I have this semester uh, has over 2,500 students. So there's no room to do that in. So uh, I have to do it online, which means that I basically... Uh, do those lectures sitting down. So I do sit a, a lot of the time. And now uh, a study has come out from uh, Columbia University uh, where researchers have looked into what is the optimal thing to do in terms of getting up and moving around when you're basically sitting in front of the computer all day or sitting uh, you know, at a desk all day. And they have come up with some very interesting results. So I did get an answer to my question about the world's largest reptile. Indeed, it is the saltwater crocodile. It can reach up to a thousand kilograms. That's one heavy croc. And over six meters in length. I don't think you want to be confronting that guy. All right, so uh, I still have the other questions about the uh, banning of banana imports by Britain in 1940 and about why the Gossamer Albatross, the first human-powered aircraft that crossed the English Channel, and why it was called Gossamer. And uh, let me give you another question. This sound was first heard on TV in 1971 on All in the Family. What sound was that? 514-790-0800 is our number, or you can, of course, text your questions, comments to 514-800. And uh, let me emphasize that uh, you can call up not only to answer the questions that I've asked, but with any question of your own that may have been tickling your uh, your mind. Well, let me get back to what I was talking about, about sitting down and, and standing up. So the researchers at Columbia University carried out actually a very interesting study of 11 adults. Well, that's not a huge number, but it's pretty hard to do this kind of experiment with a, a larger number. And uh, they were asked to sit in an ergonomic chair for eight hours, uh, but uh, getting up only for a prescribed uh, exercise regimen, as uh, I will uh, tell you about it in a moment. 
And uh, they were also monitored in terms of their blood pressure and their blood sugar, that is spikes of blood sugar, because these are key indicators of cardiovascular health. So the participants were allowed to work on a laptop or read or do whatever uh, sitting down, except for what they were asked to do. So what were they asked to do? Mm -hmm. Several different regimens uh, were, uh, you know, were instituted. For example, taking a walking break every 30 minutes for one minute. That was one thing. Taking a walking uh, break every 60 minutes, either for one minute or for five minutes. Taking a walking break every 30 minutes for five minutes. And so, you know, they monitor this and, and they check their blood pressure. They check their uh, blood glucose uh, levels. So what did they find? Well, interestingly enough, getting up and walking for one minute uh, every hour uh, did absolutely nothing. Now, that's noteworthy because... Um, what the eye watch or other smart watches tell you to do usually is uh, to get up once an hour for one minute. <clears throat> and uh, well, at least going by this study, uh, it doesn't do anything. Uh, taking a walking break every 30 minutes for one minute provided some modest benefits for blood sugar levels, but the best results were seen when you walked for five minutes every 30 minutes. And that resulted in a significant better control of blood pressure and blood glucose uh, levels. And uh, the researchers also periodically measured the um, mood uh, of the participants, the level of fatigue, cognitive performance, etc. cetera. Uh, and uh, the, the effects on mood and fatigue uh, uh, were not all that significant, uh, although they claimed to feel less fatigue if they walked around for five minutes every uh, every 30 minutes. So this is a pretty interesting finding in, in several ways, especially because what it shows is that the advice that we have been given, and, you know, which also I, I have, uh, I guess, forwarded, is that when you're sitting, you should get up for a minute every hour. And it now seems that that is just not not enough. So what we have to strive to strive to do when we're sitting uh, in front of that computer or you know, working at a desk is to get up every thirty minutes and walk for five minutes. Now that is, I think, not such an easy thing to do. I mean, five minutes is a surprisingly long time to be you know kind of walking around the the office or or uh, up and down the hall. Uh, so um, I'm thinking of, of maybe one alternate uh, approach is getting one of these uh, devices that you put under your desk, uh, which um, uh, sort of uh, you can pedal like you were on, on a bicycle. Uh, so... Uh, it kind of mimics, I, I think, walking. Now, I'm, I would like to see uh, the experimenters look at that as well to see whether or not that actually offers the same kind of benefits as, uh, you know, as, as getting up and, and walking. 
Because I was just looking at these things, and uh, I mean, these days, what do you do when you want to buy something? You look on Amazon, and uh, there are dozens and dozens of these things. Uh, some of them um, uh, work up and down. Some of them you have to turn with your, your feet. Some of them you can even exercise on standing up. Uh, and they, they range. They range from $50 to, to $1,000. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what the difference uh, is. But uh, I would guess that um, uh, pedaling these things or, you know, doing that up and down motion as some of them uh, allow you to do uh, would be tantamount to walking for five minutes every 30 minutes. But I would like to see some uh, data on that. But I think that might be an easier thing uh, to do. I, I can I can kind of see myself doing that, but getting up every 30 minutes for five minutes, I, I think that's uh, that's more difficult. But uh, I, I think the other interesting aspect of the study is that uh, these benefits that they see on, uh, you know, because of walking for five minutes every 30 minutes, these benefits are on top of the usual benefits that you see for the recommended 30 minutes of exercise uh, every day. <laughs> so it's um, it's a very interesting uh, study. And uh, uh, I'm thinking of experimenting with uh, one of those uh, devices. All right. I did get a text answer about uh, the Gossamer. And indeed... Uh, Correct answer. Gossamer is a very lightweight fabric. Uh, yes, that that is is true. Uh, gossamer refers to any kind of fine, delicate material, and of course, it was critical that the aircraft that was pedaled across the English Channel be as light as possible. So the pilot was actually encased in a thin film of uh, Dupont's polyester called mylar, and uh, you're probably familiar with mylar, at least you, you may not know if you're familiar with it. Mylar is what is used to make those emergency blankets, uh, aluminized blankets, or the, the um, uh, coverings that you saw on the lunar lander. In that case, they were colored with a thin layer of gold in order to reflect uh, light. That's mylar. But the original term gossamer, refers to the fine, filmy substance that spider, spiders excrete uh, with which they weave their webs. That was the original meaning of, uh, of gossamer. But now it is used to describe any kind of you know, very thin uh, material. So we do have a correct answer to, uh, to that question. Then I, I have a question about uh, probiotics and whether or not from a chemistry standpoint uh, can you eat too much? Well, I can tell you that this is just a huge area of research, the area of probiotics and what they do to, to your microbiome, that is the bacteria that inhabit your, your gut. Uh, so that is going to take a bit of a, a longer answer. So uh, you have to wait a minute because we're approaching news time at 3.30. So first we're going to check the... Um, situation of the world through the eyes of CTV, and then we'll be right back and uh, talk about these probiotics. Well, I did have a correct answer to my question about the sound first heard uh, on uh, 
television on All in the Family. That was the sound of a flushing toilet. And, uh, of course, uh, in those days, uh, things were very different in terms of what you could see and hear on television. And uh, it was on the All in the Family show that the toilet was flushed for the first time. And Rita wants to know whether or not marching in place for five minutes in front of your desk uh, every 30 minutes would be an alternative to, to walking. Well, the researchers didn't examine that, but I, I think a logical guess would be that uh, that would uh, do the trick. Okay, let me uh, pose one more question here. Which continent has the lowest infant mortality rate? Which continent has the lowest infant mortality rate? 514-790-0800 or 514-800-TEXT. All right, before um, we pause for the news, question came up about uh, probiotics and whether or not you can have too many of these. Well, probiotics are bacteria that supposedly are beneficial uh, for us. Our gut is full of trillions of bacteria, uh, numerous varieties, and uh, some of these are thought to be beneficial. Uh, some are pathogenic, that is potentially disease-causing. And we want the good bacteria to squeeze out the disease-causing bacteria, plus to do some uh, good jobs for us. And uh, these probiotics, which are live bacteria, uh, are supposedly healthy for the gut. They improve our metabolism. Uh, they even have an effect on, uh, on our immune system, mental health, uh, etc. How do you get these good bacteria? Well, you can uh, buy uh, bacteria, uh, various kind of uh, preparations, uh, you know, in the pharmacy or in some health food stores, which are set to boost your good bacteria in your gut. The trouble is nobody knows exactly which those good bacteria are all. They're making educated guesses, for example, products like BioK, and they have some, you know, uh, some... Uh, evidence for this, mostly for gut health, that, you know, people who suffer from indigestion problems or constipation, uh, diarrhea. In terms of uh, effects on metabolism and mental health uh, and immune system, uh, there's less known about that in terms of these supplements. But one way that you can boost your intake of these probiotics is by eating fermented foods, because fermented foods are made possible by the action of uh, these probiotic bacteria. So what are we talking about? We're talking about things like yogurt and kefir and uh, miso and tempeh, kimchi, sauerkraut, sourdough bread, kombucha, these things. But you've got to watch the sodium content of these because um, some of them can be very high. I, I wish we had some more hard science on this, but uh, I can tell you that the research community is hard at work trying to unravel the mysteries of, uh, of probiotics. And uh, there are some um, products now which are being explored in research labs that look very, very interesting. There, there is one product called SLAB51, which is not uh, uh, a very common one. It's a mixture of, I think, eight different bacteria. And a um, very interesting study just came out about this and in connection to COVID. 
is that uh, people who were uh, symptomatic with COVID and were given this particular probiotic um, preparation reduced their requirement for oxygen because uh, somehow the gut, which actually requires a lot of oxygen and in, in things that are being metabolized there, that was reduced when they were taking uh, probiotics. So we're learning more and more about this, but back to the question of, you know, whether or not you can uh, <laughs> uh, take too much of this, uh, you probably can. You probably can. Uh, maybe not only because of bacteria, but everything else that is in the foods that contain those probiotics. As far as the bacteria in probiotic supplements go, uh, chances are that, that you're not going to overdose uh, on those. But again, you know, this is a, a, a vibrant and fluid uh, area of, uh, of research. I did have a correct answer to the continent with the lowest infant mortality rate, and that, of course, is Antarctica. Uh, it has the lowest infant mortality. Hi, it's Caroline of Bon Cibon. And Michael. And guess what? What? No, not you, Michael. You already know. Oh, right. You know how other companies have these great promotions, but with conditions like for new customers only or for a limited time? Well, our promotions are for all of our customers all of the time. And since Bon Cibon is not subscription-based, there's nothing to cancel. Just order whenever you want. It's that simple. Dinner's always ready. With Bon Cibon. B-O-N-C-B-O-N dot com. All right, we had a little break there for technical reasons. So anyway, we had the correct answer to infant mortality, and that, of course, was Antarctica. Okay, you guys are hot in answering questions today, so here's another one. In the curious case of Benjamin Button, what was the curious case? So in the curious case of Benjamin Button, like a classic movie, garnered many, many Oscar nominations, and I think won three of them. What is the curious case. Okay, now I want to switch to another topic which I think is very interesting. I want to talk about the connection between King George III and vampires. Is there such a connection? Well, it's not that the king uh, and King George III uh, reigned from 1760 to 1820. Uh, it's not that he believed in, in uh, you know, the undead rising from the graves to, to, to torment the living and bite them on the neck, etc. Uh, I don't think he believed in that, at least as far as we know. But what links the king to vampires is a disease known as porphyria, from which George is said to have suffered and which also has been proposed to have given rise to the myth of the vampire. Well, you know what? Musings about King George, vampires, porphyria, uh, these have circulated widely in the media and, and you know, particularly on the internet. Uh, and uh, there have been articles about uh, these things even in the medical literature. But the fact is that, you know, the scientific background to this is, is really, really very uh, uh, sketchy. Now, porphyria is indeed a very real disease. In, indeed, it's it's a a group of eight genetic disorders. And there's a common link here, and they are all characterized by the buildup of molecules called porphyrins in the body. And these are the building blocks of heme. And that in turn is 
incorporated into hemoglobin. That's the molecule in red blood cells that binds oxygen and delivers it to, to cells. Well, in the porphyrias, there's some sort of malfunction in one of the steps in, in the <coughs> body synthesis of heme. And uh, therefore, these precursors accumulate uh, in the body. And uh, that is what can cause symptoms, which can range from abdominal pain, weakness, confusion, delirium. You can have psychotic episodes, seizures. Uh, the skin can become mottled and, and uh, it uh, is affected by sunlight. There's extreme sunlight sensitivity. Uh, and in some cases, excess porphyrins are eliminated in the urine and they impart a reddish purple color uh, that eventually turns dark on exposure to, to light. Well, anyway, in the 1960s, a couple of psychiatrists proposed a theory uh, that uh, George III was afflicted with porphyria. They did a posthumous uh, diagnosis based on uh, contemporary accounts that they found in the Royal Archives and then the British Library, and they tried to relate George's abdominal pains and muscle weakness and periodic bizarre behavior uh, to porphyria. And they claimed final proof that the king passed this colored urine, in one case, blue. Well, th this is uh, kind of venturing into some uh, uncharted territory. And uh, this analysis has received a, a lot of uh, backlash, a lot of, of criticism, because other researchers also scrutinized the uh, accounts found in the British Library and came to a different conclusion. I have a little bit of a programming note uh, for you. As uh, many of you know, I do a little hit every Monday with uh, Aaron Rand and Natasha uh, which uh, airs at 3.50 every Monday. We talk about some interesting things in the world of science. Uh, that is moving to Tuesday at 3.50. Uh, not a life-changing uh, change, but I thought you'd be interested in that. All right, we have Pam on the line. Pam. Hi, Dr. Joe. Thanks for Hi. taking my call. What's up? I have an antique mirror above a wood console, and I see the mirror that was restored is leaking mercury silvery goop and I was wondering if that's a concern for my health obviously I'll throw out the mirror but I wonder if the console underneath it should be thrown out as well and is well, there something I need uh, to be taking are you sure that this is mercury well, because uh, no uh, you know mirrors can be made with silver aluminum how old is this mirror it's probably 50 years old yeah, it could be good be mercury it's uh, hard to say and what do you mean it leaking well it, it looked like it's leaking from the back so it has um like a goopy silver pieces are, are coming down i almost i could pick it up with a dropper it's like liquidy goopy mm -hmm. well that could could be mercury it could be mercury oh it actually uh, you don't like, want to okay sorry go ahead yeah, you don't want playing around with it. I mean, don't put it in your hand and play with it. Uh, the the main risk of mercury is is actually ingestion of mercury compounds. Inhalation of mercury vapor is less of a problem, but nevertheless, it it is an it is an issue. Where where in what room is this? It's a main hallway as I walk into my house. 
and and mm-hmm. um, it looks like mercury because it's almost little balls of silver. Yeah, it sounds so it like in the foyer. It's, it sounds like it is, and uh, uh, I mean, I can't confirm it, you know, obviously, but but it probably would be better not to have it. I mean, you don't, even though mercury vapor is not all that toxic, uh, you'd rather not be exposed to it. Okay, Do you have children good. in the house? Do you have so children I'll get rid in of the it? house? And what about the wood console that's underneath it that had some of the oh, mercury I don't think, on I it? Oh, I don't think, no, that I don't think is a problem. Are, are there infants in the house? No. Okay. Well, then it's it's you know much less of a risk because the the big risk is when the nervous system is developing. But yeah, uh, you know what? Uh, why take any chance at all? Replace it with some nice modern mirror. Okay. And should okay. I be take if we've in, inhaled some of the mercury? Is there anything that we should be no, taking? No, 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 no. There, okay. there would be no risk to you. Okay. Thank you very much, Dr. Joe. Very informative. Okay. Very good. Uh, Yeah. I mean, mercury mirrors used to be very, very popular. And uh, uh, the Hall of Mirrors at Versailles is, uh, you know, they're all mercury mirrors. But, uh, you know, if they're properly made, they don't release the, uh, the mercury. Anyway, let me get back for a moment to what I was talking about, uh, you know, with King King George. And uh, the allegation that the king's occasional extreme changes in mood and eccentric behavior and delusions uh, were caused by a physical disease, uh, well, that captured the imagination of the media, and it spurred all kinds of articles in the popular press. And there were even suggestions that the loss of the American colonies was due to a mentally disturbed king making poor military decisions. Well, that really doesn't hold water because the first serious episode of psychotic illness that was recorded was in 1788. And that was, of course, well after the Revolutionary War. Anyway, critics of, uh, of this uh, theory of linking you know, King George to Porphyria um, uh, were many uh, not scientists, physicians, who looked up the same accounts, you know, in the British Library and the Royal Archives and came to different conclusions, especially when they checked this business with the urine, because it turned out that there really were no systematic reports of, of, of the king having uh, discolored urine. There were a few reports of what they called bloody water. And, you know, sometimes elderly people will have blood in, in their urine. Uh, there was one report of what they called bilious urine. Uh, the meaning of that is obscure. And there was one case of urine that t- was tinged with blue. And these, particularly the blue clutter, are hardly evidence of the purple urine that is uh, associated with porphyria. Uh, one researcher has proposed that the blue may actually have been due to an extract of the gentian flower that was given to the king as a uh, remedy. So in any case, the proponents of porphyria theory ignored the numerous reports about the king passing normal urine during his psychotic episodes, and they cherry-picked a few cases uh, that they then stretched to fit their theory. And some critics also claim that uh, McAlpine and Hunter, the, the two psychiatrists, distorted the evidence to promote their philosophical agenda that mental illness was not an entity by itself, but was actually a manifestation of some sort of uh, metabolic disorder. 
So how do these critics explain George's episodes of peculiar behavior? Uh, they make a case for the king suffering from bipolar disease. And uh, that is consistent with the periodic appearance of the symptoms. And uh, interesting enough, this has further been underlined by a fascinating paper uh, that uh, uh, was published in uh, uh, 19, uh, in 2017 that examined the digitized version of a multitude of letters written by George III over his long range. And computational approaches were used to compare syntax and stylistic patterns and ideation with material written by people diagnosed with bipolar disease. And they concluded that George's letters that were composed during his periods of mania reflected changes that were consistent with those seen in the writings of bipolar patients. So that seems to be a much better guess about what uh, he suffered from rather than uh, porphyria. Now, what is the connection of King George uh, III? You know, well, that's uh, tenuous, as I said. But the association of the disease with the legend of the vampire, well, that's even more speculative. And uh, this uh, really began in 1985 when uh, Dr. David Dolphin, who's a very highly respected, noted researcher uh, at uh, University of British Columbia, he's a biochemist, and he has carried out a lot of research on porphyria and uh, even uh, was the um, inventor of a medication which was based on porphyrins that is used for macular degeneration. But anyway, at a, a conference in 1985, he conjectured about victims of porphyria uh, with their symptoms of sensitivity to light, mottled skin, and reddish teeth due to porphyrin buildup that this may have created the legend of the vampire. Uh, he was uh, in this talk somewhat whimsical, and he wanted to just highlight porphyrin research. He never published anything written ab about this. However, reporters at the conference snapped up the, what he said and came up with clever headlines like, chemist goes to bat for vampires, implying that there may be more to vampires than a myth. Well, no, there isn't. While such musings may be entertaining, there's a serious side to the alleged porphyrin vampire connection. After articles about vampires and porphyria flooded the media, one physician reported a patient with the disease who became depressed and needed reassurance that he was not descended from vampires and would not turn into one. So no, there are no real vampires and uh, calling people or associating people who have porphyria, serious disease with vampirism is, is not uh, a smart thing to do. All right. Well, we learned something hopefully here today about King George III. Uh, there was, uh, of course, a great movie called The Madness of King George uh, that tells the whole story. And uh, uh I don't know if it's available in the streaming services. I, I haven't seen it, but I remember it was just a, a great movie. Although I don't remember if they pay any attention to the color of the urine. But I do know that in the um, credits that roll uh, after the movie, they do make some reference to the research about the of the urine. Well, that is it for today. We have run out of time. But rest assured, we'll be back with you same time, same station next week. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right. <laughs>